0: All right. Well, welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, Andy is in the MICU, so it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jonathan Chow um, for today's presentation. Uh, Dr. Chow completed his uh, MD at Elban Medical College uh, and subsequently his anesthesia residency here at Maryland, did a critical care fellowship at George Washington, and came back as faculty assistant professor of anesthesiology here at the School of Medicine and most uh, recently program director, is his current position, the Anesthesia Critical Care Fellowship. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Chow in the SICU, learning from him as his fellow, and so I look forward to this talk today. Dr. Chow. All
1: right. Uh, Thanks for having me uh, for uh, this lunchtime talk. Um, So I've been asked to speak about uh, vasopressors and uh, vasoconstrictors, um, so we'll kind of go through the mechanism of the uh, plethora of uh, vasopressors that we have uh, in our toolbox and see which uh, clinical scenarios are uh, most um, ideal uh, for each to treat shock. So we see uh, several forms of shock uh, every day here. Um, most commonly, uh, at least at Shock Trauma Center, you uh, encounter a hypovolemic shock from uh, multiple gunshot wounds. Uh, from patients who are uh, severely uh, dehydrated. Uh, we see cardiogenic shock from patients who have uh, acute MIs, uh, from valvular heart diseases and uh, arrhythmias. Um, and we also see uh, obstructive shock from patients uh, with uh, massive PEs, uh, from uh, tension pneumothoraces, and uh, patients with uh, cardiac tamponades. The most common form of shock that we see in the ICU is uh, distributive shock. So most commonly, uh, that comes in the form of a septic shock, Um, although uh, if you are uh, allergic to something and you have uh, peanuts, for example, you could definitely go into anaphylactic anaphylactic shock, which is a type of distributive shock. Um, You can also see uh, spinal shock, um, either from uh, high cervical injuries, uh, from uh, trauma, or from uh, misadventures uh, in OB with uh, epidurals and uh, spinals. Um, So uh, the most common form of shock that we see in the ICU is distributive shock. It uh, uh, it is about two-thirds of the cases of shock that we see, and 94% of these cases come in the form of uh, septic shock. So when we encounter a patient in shock, the first thing that we want to do is to maintain blood pressure, and that's the most uh, important thing. We usually uh, uh, reach for a MAP target of 65, and the reason why we choose 65 is because of this study. This was a very large study done by uh, Sessler and his group at uh, the Cleveland Clinic, and they took a look at uh, 33,000 patients who presented for non-cardiac surgery, and they measured the lowest uh, mean arterial pressure during. So uh, when they found that the uh, mean arterial pressure started to drift below 65, uh, you can see here and here that the rate of uh, post-op acute kidney injury and the rate of uh, post-op myocardial injury uh, increased. What was really surprising about this study was that even a brief period of hypotension also affected your outcome. So if you're hypotensive for between 60 seconds and five minutes, which I would argue occurs every single time after you intubate someone, especially in the ICU, you now have a 1.2 times increase in your risk of developing post-op acute kidney injury. If you're now hypertensive for between six to 10 minutes, uh, which you can see right here, then you have now increased your rate of post-op cardiac complications by one and a half times. And then if you're hypertensive for 20 minutes, you have now doubled your rate of uh, developing post-op cardiac complications. And 20 minutes seems like a long time, but it's really not that long. Um, On Weinberg 5 here, we get uh, vital uh, Q, uh, couple hours, Q-4 hours. Um, By the time a clinician notices that someone's hypotensive, it may be uh, 15, 20, 30 minutes, and then by the time Uh, a resident or a MP gets paid, that's another 15 minutes, and then takes another 15 minutes for them to arrive uh, on uh, the unit. So by that time, you can see how easily uh, 20 minutes um, could have passed. So we have several uh, different uh, choices of medications that we can use to treat uh, septic shock, from norepinephrine to vasopressin to uh, less used agents such as dopamine, dobutamine, Uh, epinephrine, methylene blue. So how do all of these different uh, drugs uh, work? So mainly all of these drugs work uh, on the uh, alpha receptor. So uh, you have uh, norepinephrine, uh, which is uh, right up here in the purple. That will uh, act on your alpha-1 receptors to cause uh, smooth muscle vasoconstriction. And the way it works is that uh, your alpha-1 receptor will get activated, and that will lead to uh, calcium release from your sarcoplasmic uh, sarcoplastic, sarcoplastic uh, reticulum, um, and that will eventually lead to uh, activation of myosin light chain kinase, which will then lead to smooth muscle uh, contraction. So norepinephrine hits that uh, receptor, uh, epinephrine hits that receptor, and then phenylephrine um, also uh, act on that uh, receptor as well. Um, you can see uh, we have a vasopressin type 1A receptor, um, and they will also uh, lead to uh, activation of myosin lysine kinase uh, through a similar mechanism. Uh, and we also have angiotensin type 1 receptors, uh, which will also um, act uh, on this target to uh, increase smooth uh, muscle uh, contraction. So when we have someone in the ICU, uh, you can really raise your blood pressure uh, as high as you want. Um, so you can increase the dose of epi to uh, from 0.5 per kilo per minute to 1 to 2 to 3 per kilo per minute. You can really raise it as high <coughs> as you want. Um, in one place, I saw a uh, ICU trying to bypass the limit on the Alaric pump by obtaining two separate bags of norepinephrine and putting it in two separate channels of the aleric pump. To give them more epinephrine. Happen- but we know that that comes uh, at a uh, cost. Um, patients will develop uh, lymphosphemia, uh, they'll, uh, they'll develop an approach with their fingers. Um, there was one case that I got maybe about a year or two ago. Um, the patient was 18 years old. Um, she had recently been, been diagnosed with uh, leukemia and uh, came to us uh, for a unique shot. She arrived in the CCRU on uh, three microkelet per, per minute of neuropinectric. So uh, without any being pressure, without any other agents on board, we took her straight to the OR for her next lab. And uh, she had uh, of extremities, she had no cap refill. Um, and then when the surgeons took the look, the entire small bowel, uh, large bowel, and gallbladder bladder were necrotic because of the uh, toxic effect of the um, neuropine. So how does someone develop shock when they're exposed to a second disease? So um, shock is mainly driven by uh, nitric oxide, um, and nitric oxide is a very potent vasodilator. Um, and overproduction of nitric oxide is a really uh, important uh, feature of shock. So you can see we have uh, nitric oxide uh, right here in this uh, blue circle. And nitric oxide will then uh, lead to inhibition of myosin-like chain kinase, which will then lead to smooth muscle relaxation. Well, it turns out that everyone in this room uh, is producing nitric oxide uh, right now. So when you go to the gym and you run three miles, your blood pressure doesn't rise to 300 millimeters of mercury. Because you produce nitric oxide uh, to combat the increase in blood pressure, so we have a constitutive uh, nitric oxide synthase, which will produce nitric oxide over a short period of time and uh, have a relatively short half life, so that you can auto regulate uh, your blood pressure. But uh, when patients are in septic shock, uh, you have uh, macrophages and endotoxins. TNF-alpha, which will then activate a separate form of nitric oxide synthase, which is uh, inducible uh, nitric oxide synthase. And the difference between inducible and constitutive nitric oxide synthase is that this nitric oxide is activated for a long period of time, so you will get a prolonged period of uh, shock to hypotension. And uh, things like uh, your uh, interleukins, TNF-alpha, Uh, macrophage activation, that will all activate uh, nitrous oxide synthase. If you take a look at uh, mice who lack the nitrous oxide synthase gene and then you inoculate them with uh, bacteria, (coughs) these mice are septic, but they don't develop septic shots. So they maintain their blood pressure because they are not able to produce the nitrous oxide that is required to cause smooth uh, muscle vasodilation. Uh, dilation. So wouldn't it be nice in medicine if we actually had a medication that does something similar? And it turns out that we do. Um, and that's a drug that we have uh, called Methylene Blue. So Methylene Blue, uh, its mechanism of action is twofold. So they will inhibit uh, nitrous oxide synthase um, to prevent the formation of nitrous oxide but then it will also work downstream in the chain to inhibit uh, guanolol cycling <coughs> to also uh, prevent the inhibition of myosin uh, like chain. Uh, so the evidence for methylene blue in the literature is uh, very, very mixed. So this was one study that was done in Argentina. Um, they took a look at 56 patients who um, were in uh, uh, 56 patients who were undergoing uh, cardiac surgery and they randomized them to methylene glue uh, or to placebo. And they found that in all the patients who got the methylene blue that uh, their uh, uh, basalus all resolved uh, within two hours, um, whereas in the control um, basalus was still present after 48 hours in about a quarter of those patients. This was another study, this was a study done in Turkey on um, 100 patients uh, undergoing elective cabbage. Um, and they randomized these patients to either control or to methylene blue uh, preop. They found that patients who uh, got the methylene blue, they had uh, higher systemic vascular resistances uh, while on bypass, they required no, uh, less norepinephrine support and less uh, ionotropic support. So that was a, another positive study uh, for methylene blue. This was a study that was done by uh, Menikin, uh Weiner uh, down in uh, Mount Sinai in New York. Um, and they took a look at uh, 226 patients uh, undergoing cardiac surgery uh, and uh, undergoing uh, bypass. And they uh, assessed the effect of methylene blue in these patients. They found that patients who uh, got the methylene blue They had significantly increased uh, in-hospital morbidity, mortality. Um, They had a higher rate of uh, post-op tracheostomy. Uh, They spent longer days in the ICU and spent more time uh, on uh, vasopressors. So the evidence out there for uh, or against methylene blue out there in the literature is um, quite mixed. So what about other um, non-catecholamines that we... Um, can use uh, in sepsis. Um, The uh, study that uh, comes to my attention is the APPROACHES trial, Um, and this was a trial that was done uh, primarily in France uh, for uh, patients who were in uh, septic shock. So uh, this was multi-center, it was double-blind, it was a randomized control trial of uh, 1,200 patients uh, with septic shock and they included patients in shock who were early on in their course of shock, so less than 24 hours, and they were on relatively higher doses of vasopressors, greater than 0.25 mics per kilo per minute, Um, and they specifically excluded patients who were in in septic shock for more than 24 hours. They uh, randomized them to hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone for seven days, um, and they found that patients who got these uh, combination of steroids, that they spent less time on vasopressors, they spent less time on the mechanical <coughs> ventilator, they uh, had uh, significantly improved uh, organ failure three days, um, but then also they had uh, improved survival um, at uh, 90 days. For, patient, for uh, clinicians who are worried about administering uh, uh steroids to someone who's uh post op or someone who's in septic shock they also took a look at the rate of uh superinfections and the rate of a uh, new sepsis in these patients and they found that the rate of uh superinfections was uh not statistically different between the groups but also the rate of uh developing new onset sepsis or septic shock was also not uh not statistically different uh, between the group. Uh, so those two concerns uh, we frequently see um, in the ICU, but uh, they are not statistically significant. So I wouldn't ever withhold uh, steroids to someone uh, simply because I'm worried about c- causing a, a new infection. So there was another uh, trial on steroids um, called the ADRENAL trial that was actually published in the same exact journal in the same exact year and they found results that were not quite as uh, significant. So um, they found that although uh, giving hydrocortisone to patients improved the duration um, that they spent on vasopressors, that it did not have a significant impact um, on mortality. There are a couple of key differences between these trials. So the APPROACHES trial enrolled patients very early on uh, in the course of septic shock, less than 24 hours whereas the adrenal trial uh, looked at patients uh, on median uh, hour 20, but plus or minus 90 hours. So you could be early on in the course of sepsis, or you could be very late, a couple days into your course of septic shock. Also, the uh, dose of steroids that was administered was uh, also different as well. So in approaches, um, the investigators used a bolus of steroids Whereas in the adrenal trial, they did a continuous uh, infusion without a loading dose. So now you have patients that are later on in the course of septic shock, but then they're also getting the slow infusion of steroids. So it will probably take a couple hours for them to reach uh, therapeutic uh, plasma levels of the hydrocortisone. Also, the degree of shock between uh, these two trials was also uh, different as well. Um, in approaches, uh, the median uh, dose of vasopressors was 0.7 mics per kilo per minute of uh, norepinephrine, uh, whereas in adrenal, the uh, median dose was uh, 0.3 uh, mics per kilo per minute. So patients in approaches were, uh, uh, on average, much more uh, sicker and in a higher degree of shock than patients who were um, in the adrenal trial. So looking at other forms of uh, vasopressors or vasoconstrictors that we can use, what is the evidence for or against uh, hydroxycobalamin um, or vitamin B12? So that's a drug that has been uh, used uh, many points uh, in the ICU. Um, And on my PubMed search for hydroxycobalamin, there are only three case reports in the literature And there are only two retrospective uh, case theories of only 20 to 30 patients uh, in septic shock. So really the evidence for using uh, vitamin B12 to increase your blood pressure, there's no evidence for it uh, at all. Um, Really uh, very limited uh, case reports and very uh, limited um, uh, trials. So we move from uh steroids, uh hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone, uh to methylene blue. Uh now we have moved to vitamin B12 and we've discussed uh the uh evidence or lack of evidence for that. What about the use of other non-catecholamines uh such as vitamin C? So, uh the idea of vitamin C was born from uh Paul Merrick, uh who is a intensivist at uh, Eastern Virginia Medical School. Um, And uh, him and his group took a look at the use of vitamin C in septic shock. So this was a a retrospective uh, before-after study of less than 100 patients uh, in severe sepsis or in septic shock with a procalcitonin level uh, greater than 2. And in the control group, he enrolled patients uh, between June of 2015 and December, Whereas patients who were treated with the vitamin C cocktail were enrolled between January and July. And you can re- already see that there's a confounder here because uh, patients in the control group were enrolled in the summer and in the fall, um, whereas patients in the treatment group were enrolled in the winter um, and in the spring. Um, also, patients in the control group were uh, probably exposed to uh, more inexperienced practitioners because the academic year starts in uh, July. So that's, uh, two, uh, compounders that I can think of, uh, right off the bat. But why did he choose, uh, vitamin C? So, uh, vitamin C is a, uh, precursor to, uh, several, um, endogenous vasoconstrictors, um, that we produce. Um, so it's involved in the conversion of L-tyrosine into L-DOPA, which is critical for, uh, dopamine formation, but it's also used to convert, uh, dopamine into endogenous uh, Nor epinephrine, and uh, depletion of vitamin C is uh, frequent, uh, frequently seen in sepsis. It's a, a potent antioxidant and it's a free uh, radical scavenger, so that's why he chose uh, vitamin C. He also added hydrocortisone um, to this cocktail, uh, 50 milligrams q6 for four, for uh, seven days, and then he also included um, iv thiamine. Uh, for metabolic resuscitation as well, because thiamine levels are also uh, frequently depleted uh, in sepsis and septic shock. So what did uh, the study find? So they found that uh, patients who got the uh, vitamin C cocktail, which is in the red, that they had a significantly improved uh, dose of norepinephrine after the vitamin C was started. They also had a significant improvement in the uh, SOFA score, And uh, significantly, they also had improved uh, in-hospital mortality as well. So the uh, hospital mortality in the treatment group was 8% uh, versus uh, 40%. And this slide right here is probably the most uh, profound uh, figure in the article. In the patients who received the vitamin C, the predicted mortality was almost 40%. But the actual mortality that they saw in the study was uh, less than 10%. So that's uh, quite a big finding. If you can decrease uh, your mortality by over 30% by giving uh, IV uh, vitamin C, then that would be uh, pretty significant. Um, But there are several compounders to this study. So it was a single center, um, it was a retrospective study. Again, it was a before-after design. So um, I talked about the compounders from the seasons, uh, confounders from potentially, uh, having, uh, more, uh, inexperienced practitioners in the, uh, control group. But also the study was not blinded and they use, uh, three sim- simultaneous interventions, uh, in the treatment group. So, uh, they use the hydrocortisone plus the vitamin C plus the thiamine. So we don't really know if it is the vitamin C that is causing the, uh, uh, the uh, norepinephrine uh, decrease, or if it's the steroids, because we know that the APPROACHES trial showed that you have a improvement in uh, blood pressure. Um, but nonetheless, uh, vitamin C and thymine are both uh, uh, very cheap, uh, they're readily available, and they have a pretty good uh, safety profile. So this led to the development of the uh, Citrus Ali trial, um, and that was another trial that looked Uh, just at vitamin C by itself in the treatment of a septic shock. So this was a uh, randomized control trial of 167 patients um, with sepsis um, and ARDS, um, and they either received received vitamin C or uh, placebo. And as the uh, primary outcome, they took a look at the improvement in SOFA score as well as the uh, improvement in uh, biomarkers for inflammation, which was a C-reactive protein. Um, they took a look at thrombomodulin levels at 168 hours, and they wanted to see if patients who got the vitamin C had an improvement in those outcomes. Well, um, you can see here, uh, so the vitamin C group is in orange and placebo is in blue. You can see that at uh, 0, 48, 96, and 168 hours, there was no uh, significant difference in the uh, CRP. There was no significant difference in the uh, thrombo-modulin uh, levels. And there was no difference in the uh, SOFA scores at any time point. But then the next slide that they presented uh, was the uh, mortality uh, pop- uh, probability. And they found that patients who receive vitamin C had a significantly improved uh, probability of uh, mortality, which doesn't really make sense when your SOFA scores are not changing, because your SOFA score measures uh, your degree of organ failure. So if your degree of organ failure is no different between the groups, then how can you have uh, improved uh, mortality? They also took a look at ICU three days and hospital three days as secondary outcomes, um, and they found that there was also a significant improvement as well. Because these were secondary outcomes, when you uh, read through their methods, it turns out that this study actually had 46 secondary outcomes uh, in the trial and that they openly admit that they uh, failed to correct for the multiple comparisons. Um, so um, if you uh, start fishing for uh, data long enough, eventually you're gonna get a positive study or a positive result. Um, So you have to correct for it uh, statistically using either uh, Bonferroni correction or other methods, um, but they did not do that. So if you did uh, use a Bonferroni correction uh, to correct for a p-value of 0.03 with 46 uh, secondary outcomes, that would have been not statistically uh, significant. other trials involving vitamin C, there's the VITAMINS trial that's uh, uh, underway in uh, Australia. Um, they just enrolled uh, their last patient um, in September, so hopefully the results of that will be out soon, um, and we also have the uh, Victus trial, um, of which uh, University of Maryland uh, is a trial site, um, so uh, we'll eagerly await the uh, results of that trial as well. So, we talked about um, vitamin C, B12, uh, methylene blue, uh, stress, stress-dose steroids. What about other uh, non-catecholamine uh, agents? So, the uh, ATHOS trial uh, was a trial that was done uh, a couple years ago in uh, 2014. Um, and this was a small pilot trial examining the use of angiotensin II in patients with distributive shock. So, um, small trial of 20 patients at GW. Um, it was uh, primarily run by Mink Chawla and Mike Um And uh, they found that there was a significant improvement in your uh, dose of background norepinephrine when patients got um, angiotensin 2. So, how does uh, angiotensin 2 work? And What is the physiology of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway? So when the uh, kidney senses a state of low perfusion, the kidney will uh, secrete renin. Renin will then convert uh, angiotensinogen, which is made in the liver, into angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is primarily uh, has very low um, activity and it's converted into angiotensin II by ACE, or angiotensin-converting enzyme. And then after angiotensin II is released, it will then act on your angiotensin type 1 receptors. This leads to smooth muscle vasoconstriction, it leads to activation of your adrenal gland to release aldosterone and cortisol, and it all leads to free water absorption, which is the proposed mechanism for, uh, increasing the mean arterial pressure. The primary, the primary evidence for angiotensin II uh, comes from the ATOS 3 trial. So this was the follow up to the original ATOS trial. Um, it was a multi-center, double blind, placebo controlled trial of, uh, about 350 patients in, uh, septic shock or distributive shock. Um, and these patients were on, uh, greater than 0.2 of norepinephrine for uh, greater than six hours. And these patients in the study were relatively sick. So the median Apache 2 score was 27. Um, The um, median number of vasopressors, uh, 83% of these patients were on two or more vasopressors, and almost half of the patients in the study were on uh, greater than or or equal to uh, three vasopressors. So these patients were relatively um, sick. When these patients were randomized, they were randomized into one of two arms. So if they were randomized to the placebo group, these patients got um, standard of care vasopressors. So um, if your institution used uh, norepi plus vasopressin, you would get that combination of drugs. If your institution uses norepi plus phenylephrine plus vasopressin, uh, then you would get that combination of drugs. So you would get whatever your institution's Uh, standard-of-care vasopressors, but then along with that, you would also get a placebo bag of normal saline to hang along the side. If you were randomized to the angiotensin group, you would also get the same standard-of-care vasopressors, but then instead of the bag of normal saline, you would also have a bag of angiotensin II to hang with the infusion. And the primary endpoint of the study was an increase in MAP uh, to 75 or an increase in MAP by 10 points by hour three of the study. And when you first read that, it sounds a little bit fishy because no one actually targets a MAP of 75 in the ICU. Um, but the reason why they did that was actually quite deliberate. So this was a uh, phase three uh, FDA-approved RCT. So <clears throat> the investigators needed to prove to the FDA that this drug was a efficacious vasopressor and not a efficacious catecholamine sparing agent. So uh, these uh, investigators had to prove that the blood pressure actually went up when uh, vasopressin was administered. Um, so that was the goal in the first three hours, and then after three hours, then the MAP targets were relaxed to the normal level of uh, 65. Um, the investigators found that almost 70% of the patients who received um, angiotensin II plus standard-of-care vasopressors had a, a significant increase in uh, MAP by hour three. The median time to get to that goal was about five minutes, um, whereas uh, if you just got standard-of-care vasopressors, um, only 23% of those uh, patients had an increase in MAP um, by hour three. There was also a significant change in the... Uh, cardiovascular SOFA score, although the overall uh, SOFA score uh, was unchanged. um, And there was also a significant improvement in the dose of uh, background vasopressors. So you can see as soon as the people in the angiotensin II group um, got the drug, that the dose of background vasopressors uh, significantly improved, and that uh, was significant um, by our uh, 48. In terms of survival, the ATHOS-3 study was not powered to detect survival. So it was powered to detect a change in blood pressure, um, which is why uh, 344 patients were enrolled. Uh, nonetheless, you can kind of see that the Meyer survival curves of these um, two groups start diverging uh, by day 28, although it was not statistically significant. It, the p-value was uh, 0.12. But if you take a look at uh, specific uh subgroups of patients in uh septic shock um, patients who presented with a apache 2 score over 30 they actually benefited uh um, and had a improved uh improved uh, improve mortality um, if they got the angiotensin 2 uh than if they got the standard of care vasopressin by itself um, and the uh mortality rate was 54% in the angiotensin 2 group and 79% um, in the standard of care group and uh, this was a study, uh, also a post-hoc uh, study done on the ATHOS-3 data. Um, they found that patients uh, who got the uh, angiotensin II had improved 28 day survival if they had acute kidney injury while they were on CRRT. So um, patients with AKI on CRRT not only had improved mortality benefit, but they actually got off dialysis at a higher success rate than if you just got standard of care vasopressors by itself. So um, only 15% of patients who were on um, traditional uh, standard of care vasopressors were off CRT by day seven, um, whereas uh, almost 40% in the angiotensin II group um, were off uh, CRT um, by day seven, which is huge because if you can prevent just one, uh, ESRD patients, uh, from getting dialysis Monday, Wednesday, Friday and needing a renal transplant, then that is a huge benefit, um, to the overall, uh, healthcare system. In terms of adverse events, um, the overall rate of adverse events uh, between the two groups, uh, was not statistically different, um, although there was a, a higher rate of DVTs. Um, there were uh, 1.8% DVTs in the angiotensin II group uh, versus zero in the placebo group. Um, if you take a look at the clinically significant DVTs, then uh, this result was not statistically different. But if you lump all of the uh, thrombotic uh, events together, uh, clinically significant and non-clinically significant, then uh, there was a significant increase in the overall rate of uh, thromboembolic uh, events. So uh what do we do now? Um where does angiotensin 2 uh fall um in our toolbox? We have uh, norepinephrine that can uh treat uh the uh, sympathetic nervous system. We have uh, vasopressin that can hit the uh, arginine uh vasopressin system and now we have angiotensin 2 to hit your renin um angiotensin uh aldosterone system. So um how do we use uh these drugs? Um, I'm a big fan of uh, multimodal therapy. Uh, so if you take uh, a disease that is completely not related to septic shock, so you take um, HIV for example. We have plenty of drugs out there that can treat HIV, um, but it's not until you start combining them with heart therapy that you start getting good viral control um, of your disease. You take another unrelated disease like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, Um, you would never ever prescribe uh, methotrexate by itself or NSAIDs by itself or steroids by itself. You combine all three together um, so that you get uh, synergy. And my favorite example is hypertension. So uh, if you treat hypertension, whether as an inpatient or an outpatient, you never ever give 50 grams of levadolol to somebody. That's a toxic dose. Um, that will drop your blood pressure significantly. But if they then fail their uh, labetalol and they're still hypertensive, you wouldn't then give metoprolol as your second-line agent. But we do this every single day in the ICU. Uh, someone is on 0.5 of norepinephrine. We go up to 1. We go up to 2. We decide that they fail norepinephrine therapy. And now, all, all of a sudden, we're going to add epinephrine to the mix as if the epinephrine is gonna be able to find a alpha receptor that the norepinephrine hasn't already seen. So instead of using drugs with the same mechanism of action, we can now combine uh, three different systems um, so that we can target our uh, hypotension uh, from three different ways. In terms of uh, using angiotensin II early versus late, um, they did analyses on uh which patients or which uh population of patients uh had a better response to ang2 uh, versus not um, so uh down here um, is your norepinephrine dose and they found that patients who were on less than 0.5 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine they had a better response to angiotensin 2 than if it was used as a last course therapy and that makes sense for any drug um, you can use norepinephrine. You can use epinephrine. If you start these drugs when patient, the patient is about to arrest, there's not going to be much benefit than if you use uh, these drugs um, early on. What about other populations that uh, it has uh, been used in? So, um, angiotensin II has been reported uh, to be used uh, post-cardiopulmonary bypass for vasoplegia. Um, it has been used um, in ECMO uh, and reported in uh, critical care. Um, it has been used in patients with uh, decompensated cirrhosis, even though a of 30 was an exclusion criteria in the uh, ATHOS-3 trial. And most recently, um, it was reported to be used uh, as an as antidote to uh, ACE inhibitor overdose, Um, in one patient um, at uh, Emory uh, University. So um, I'll leave you with uh, this uh, last trial. So um, this was a a post-hoc analysis done by uh, Ham and her group at uh, the University of Minnesota. Um, And they found that patients who uh, responded quickly to angiotensin II, uh, which they defined as uh, being on less than five nanograms per kilo per minute by minute 30, that they had significantly improved mortality. That in itself is not that surprising. Um, if I um, give uh, you norepinephrine in the ICU and you are off your norepi by minute five, of course you're gonna have improved mortality. You can substitute any drug, epinephrine, dopamine, uh, vasopressin, if you get, it, get off those drugs quicker, you will have improved uh, mortality. But uh, what Ham and her group did was that they actually measured the level of angiotensin II. Um, And they found that the patients who responded uh, uh, quickly to angiotensin II actually had a significant uh, angiotensin II uh, deficiency. The uh, mean level was uh, 128 um, in the uh, rapid responder group and then uh, 420 in the patients who did not uh, rapidly uh, respond. So uh measurement of angiotensin two levels is not something that is commonly done uh and it's not uh clinically it's not a test that's clinically uh available. Um, so do we have other surrogates um, that we can use to measure the level of uh RAS dysfunction in your renin angiotensin aldosterone system? Um, so it turns out that there is a uh a biofeedback mechanism between your blood pressure, angiotensin II, and renin. Uh, Specifically, if you are hypoperfused and you have low uh, perfusion pressure in your kidney, um, then your kidney is gonna release a lot of renin in order to uh, uh, upregulate this system. So if you have dysfunction in your uh, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, such as in patients with uh, impairments in ACE, so patients with any kind of pulmonary pathology, uh, patients on VV ECMO, patients with influenza, with multi-lobar uh, pneumonia, they may benefit from um, from measurement of retin levels because it's a surrogate for your angiotensin II and RAS function. So... Uh, We did this on uh, two patients um, in the SICU, and we measured the uh, pre-angiotensin and post-angiotensin two uh, levels. Um, So the first patient was a post-kidney transplant patient who was on uh, vasopressors um, for five weeks, and he couldn't get off vasopressors. He was extubated. He was dancing in his uh, ICU bed. He was on CRRT. And on, uh, midodrine, but no one could get him off of the, uh, of the norepinephrine and vasopressin, and no one could get him off CRRT, uh, onto IHD. So we measured a, uh, plasma renin activity, uh, or a renin level, and found that his renin level was about 50, which is 25 times the upper limit of normal, which means that his RAS system is highly, uh, dysregulated. We had a second patient, um, this patient was also on high doses of uh, norepinephrine, um, and I think this patient was on like two or three mics per kilo per minute of norepi. And we also measured the uh, pre-angiotensin II retin level, and this patient uh, also had a significantly high level. This patient is in red um, of about 32, uh, which is about uh, 15 times the uh, upper uh, limit of normal. And uh, what happened was, in the first patient, um, who was on uh, 0.08 of norepi plus 0.03 of vaso pre-angiotensin II, um, as soon as we started the angiotensin II, um, so just pay attention to the blue up here, um, you can see that we immediately came off the vasopressin, we immediately came off the norepinephrine after five weeks of infusing those two drugs. Um, he started complaining of a headache, um, he started complaining of abdominal pain because his blood pressure shot up to 200 uh, millimeters of mercury. And we actually paused all of those drugs, including the angiotensin II, to let his blood pressure recover. Um, and then we restarted the angiotensin II after a couple minutes. Um, and his blood pressure uh, significantly improved. He was off uh, norepinephrine immediately. Um, he was then uh, permanently off of the angiotensin II after two days. Uh, we discharged him, or we discontinued the CRRT two days later, and then he was ready for discharge from the ICU, uh, two days after that. And this is someone who was on, uh, vasopressors, who was stuck on vasopressors for five weeks. And the second patient, which is the, uh, patient, uh, in red, uh, did not have such a, did not have such a successful outcome. Um, so this patient was on three mics per kilo per minute of, uh, of, uh, norepinephrine. Um, we measured the ANG2 level, or we measured the renin level, which was extremely high. Um, and when we started the ANG2, we uh, quickly maxed out on our dose of ANG2 to uh, 80 nanograms per kilo per minute. When we were at 80, our, uh, our uh, background norepinephrine dose actually did uh, significantly improve. Our uh, shock index improved. Um, but... Uh, Nonetheless, uh, the patient ultimately did not have a very good outcome uh, because she was on such high-dose vasopressors um, to begin with. So what can we take from all of these studies? Um, I think that uh, after looking at all the uh, post-hoc analyses, um, after looking at the randomized control trials, we can't really just blanket everybody with angiotensin II just like we do Uh, with norepinephrine. I think there's a certain use for it in selected populations. I think uh, more um, studies need to be done on those specific populations. So those with acute kidney injury on CRRT, those with Apache 2 scores over 30, and I think that there is a place for uh, personalizing your uh, vasopressor therapy by measuring the level of uh, RAS dysfunction um, in your patient So, that you can uh, target and select and personalize your um, use of uh, non catecholamines um, in these patients. And um, that's all I have for you guys um, today. Um, You guys have any questions at all? Yes? Yeah, um, well, you'll have more uh, mineral corticalicoid action, but um, I'm not really sure what the role of solutifortisone is, but you are completely correct. The All of the positive studies involve hydrocortisone plus glucocortisone in septic shock. And all the studies that found uh, improvements in blood pressure but not mortality um, only used uh, hydrocortisone. I don't really have an explanation for that. Um, I don't know if anyone else in the audience has um, uh, significant thoughts on the use of glucocortisone. but I try to give the flu the cortisone um, if we can. Frequently, we can't in the ICU because uh, they're all strict NPO, and flu the cortisone only comes as a PO tab. Um, so, unfortunately, we can't use it all the time in the ICU. But
0: yes, it's interesting that you mentioned you know, checking the renin level. Uh, for hypertension management, you know, uh, one aspect of treating hypertensive patients, you know, as an outpatient is to check the, the renin level to profile the patients and see if they would be respond to ACE inhibitors. But the way you're using it, it's, I think, the same physiological principle, but using it the reverse, you know, to increase the patient, and to see if the patient would respond, you know, to, to angiotensin too. Right.
1: We're just using it in the yeah. exact reverse. Right.
0: Right. Right. And then the second comment is about vitamin C. Um, I don't think that the medication is completely benign. So vitamin C can precipitate q oxalate nephropathy. And there have been more and more cases, you know, recognized uh, more recently as, you know, providers, you know, have been prescribing more and more, you know, big, you know, mega doses of vitamin C, you know, inpatient. Um, I'm wondering if you've encountered any patients, you know, with like, you know, vitamin C or, you know, precip- precipitating acute kidney injury.
1: Um, I have given vitamin C IV vitamin C maybe 15 to 20 times um, at GW. Um, we don't have an IV formulation here. Um, in those small subset of 20 patients, I did not encounter um, any of those events that you uh, described. But you are giving high dose vitamin C. It's 20, uh, 25 milligrams per kilo. Um, so that's uh, in a 100 kilo patient, that's two, two and a half grams. Of uh, IV vitamin C, so that's definitely, uh, definitely could cause all those events. Uh, Thank
0: you.
1: All right. Thanks so much.